the Sunday Six Pack with Dave Mann on News Radio 610 WTVN. Thanks for uh, popping open the six pack this afternoon. Hopefully, you get a chance to get out and enjoy the day a little bit before the rain moves in. Man, it, it's been a crazy, crazy news cycle in 2020. And it shows no signs of uh, letting up anytime soon. Joining me right now, political strategist Ryan Casson and CEO of Beast Digital. And Ryan, I, I know you're a big college football guy. Did you get some fix yesterday? Did that feel good to uh, see some football? Uh, I did. It was hard to watch Oklahoma. Oklahoma uh, lose a second game this season, though, already. <laughs> what, what about uh, as far as pro ball? Do you have a team? Are you invested with anybody there? Yes, sir. I'm, uh, I was born in Seattle, and so I've got the Hawks game on here in the background. Oh, all right. I got you. All right. So anyway, we have uh, debate number one. That is in the books. Happened last Tuesday. <clears throat> Um, and, and before we get into the, you know, I guess the coronavirus, uh, you know, topic with the president, I just kind of wanted to bounce back uh, to the debate. What, what were your thoughts overall? I, I was disappointed in it uh, by both sides, to be quite frank. But I'm hearing Trump actually did uh, trend up a little bit after that. Uh, what was what was your ear to the ground saying? Yeah, I mean, the, the debate was was challenging, uh, to say the least. It was it was hard to watch. And I, I think for the president, one of the things that I was disappointed by, not necessarily, you know, the aggressive nature and the tone and his interruptive uh, approach to it. But I do think that he could have put the brake pedal on just a few times when Biden was uh, doing what Biden does best. And that's say things that are complicated or confusing or contradictory. You know, there were a few instances there where Biden was hanging himself and Trump really stepped on him. Uh, You know, Antifa is an idea, not an organization. Flipping again on the Green New Deal. You know, not answering the question about packing the Supreme Court. Those are opportunities for you just to let your opponent. Why get in the way when your opponent is is hurting himself? Why get in the way of that? When what is your research showing as far as the amount of undecideds that are out there? I heard it was around maybe 13 percent. And I doubt what happened Tuesday swayed for everybody else, you know, not involved with the other what 87 percent, I guess it would be. They're still going to vote for who they're going to vote for. But do you get any sort of sense that the undecideds? found their candidate or or are they going to just wait and see what happens in these other two debates or did they go you know what what a crap show i'm just staying home november 3rd well that's definitely a possibility i mean look if you got to tuesday and the debate and after everything that had happened in the last four years and in this uh, presidential election cycle already you were still undecided i don't know that the debate was going to do much to move you one way or the other i i really believe that You know, one of the things that's been surprising about the 2020 race, unlike, uh, say, 2016, is how stable the polls have been, how stubborn they have been, and and how uh, frequently it shows that Biden has a narrow lead in some of these battleground states. By and large, no one event has really changed the nature of this race. And I mean, if you just want to zoom out a little bit, you know, just think about since March, we had the coronavirus and the subsequent economic crash, had the murder of George Floyd and 100 days of protests and violence in cities across the country. We had Bob Woodward's book where the president was talking about his coronavirus messaging strategy, the passing of RBG and the nomination of Amy Coney Barrett, a bombshell New York Times story that was just a week ago today that was supposed to affect the, the course of this race. A really interesting debate, and now Trump contracting COVID. All of these events could have been in any other cycle massive game changers that set the agenda for months to come, and yet it's just coming fast and furious in 2020. Yeah, and and who knows what uh, what's still to come before November 3rd? It sounds like Biden has pulled his negative ads. I, I'm guessing that that's a good optic, whether he really wishes the president well or not. You know, he did the obligatory statement. He, he's pulled the attack ads. And I got to imagine that that's probably a good call on his part. Yeah, I mean, look, this is a story that, um, you, you know, really tells itself. A, obviously, um, you know, I, I do take uh, Vice President Biden as word that he wants the best for the president and his family's health. Um, but, you know, he's he's doing the right thing, which is to pull the negative ads, 
stay, you know, sort of above the fray and let the COVID story play out, um, you know, as it will. Look, at the end of the day, COVID was not a winning issue for the president. Um, You know, it was why it was so important for the president's campaign to be talking about the economy, talking about China, all these other issues that are very, very important, you know, especially as you consider that COVID will be in the rearview mirror, hopefully by the end of 2021. Uh, but the reality is, is that Biden has always had a lead in the polls on who do you trust more to respond to coronavirus. So if you buy the polls, uh, having this be the issue, you know, it's it's serving Biden's campaign's interests very well here. Do you think this is going to put a major crimp into filling that Supreme Court vacancy? You know, because well, I, I, go ahead. Uh, you know, what's so interesting is the way that the coronavirus is now moving through the Senate Judiciary Committee, right? For, you know, it seems like that event where uh, Amy Coney Barrett's uh, nomination was announced or appointment um, may have been sort of the event that triggered all of these recent flurry of cases. And so you've got two members of the Judiciary Committee who are going to have to zoom in, it looks like, to the committee hearings, which, as I understand it, are still going to be held in person for those who can attend. So, you know, I, I don't think it's um, I don't think it's sort of on a knife's edge here, but it's not hard to imagine that this gets derailed if things continue the way they are. Well, you, you just said it there a sentence or two back. They can zoom in. And, you know, Comey was able to uh, testify last week virtually. So. Um, and I, I don't mean this in any sort of a disrespectful way, but if, if these senators are not on their deathbeds and, and they're self-quarantining, maybe they've got you know minor symptoms or whatever, um, th- there should be no reason why they can't participate. Or, or is there any sort of language that doesn't allow them to participate in, in these hearings via Zoom or a Teams call? They absolutely can, and uh, I expect that they will. Uh, you know, sort of to the notion that COVID is not a winning issue for uh, the president and therefore broadly Republicans with the president at the top of the ticket in November. I think it's going to be important that this, a uh, you know, silver lining on the month of October, continues to proceed. And you know, having that vote a week before Election Day, give or take, I think is, a, is an important win for conservatives to, to be talking about. I mean, look, the, there's no better spokesman for the Republican Party and, you know, the president's campaign than the president himself. And best case scenario, he's still uh, looking at another 10 days in isolation, bare minimum, with 30 days to Election Day. I mean, that's fully a third of your available calendar remaining, just completely wiped out. So, yeah, I I think we're going to see a lot of Zoom events, whether it's in the Senate Judiciary Committee or from the campaign itself. But unfortunately, that appears to be what the new normal is for at least the, the remaining 30 days. Well, on Friday, I already heard Rush Limbaugh offering up his uh, radio show as a platform, you know, for uh, for Trump to do some sort of uh, radio rally. So I'm sure even though he can't physically get out on the campaign trail, I I really don't see him going into hiding a la, you know, Joe Biden the last uh, few weeks and months. Public perception of him getting a treatment that hasn't been approved by the FDA. Is that good or bad? I mean... Your your perception is your reality on this kind of stuff. I mean, for him to, to step up and say, yeah, I'll go ahead and take something that hasn't been approved by the FPA, FDA, I think on one hand, people could look at that as being somewhat courageous. But, of course, other people are going to claim that, well, he's getting preferential treatment. So uh, <laughs> should the president of the United States, the, basically the most powerful man in the free world, should he get preferential treatment? <laughs> Yeah, I was going to say, I've got bad news for Americans who are surprised to learn the president would get preferential treatment on anything. It's It's been happening for a while now. Um, look, I, I think, you know, it's actually sort of related to this notion of, well, is the president going to get a sympathy vote uh, as a result of contracting COVID here and, and ultimately, you know, surviving it? And and I don't think so. I don't think the president you know, has ever positioned himself as a particularly sympathetic character. But what he is, is somebody positions himself as uh, an image of strength. And so the fact that he mm-hmm. is taking these experimental treatments, he's going to be able to speak from experience about COVID in a way he could never talk about COVID in the past. And that is, look, you know, and we already saw it with the president's four minute video message yesterday, you know, referring to uh, these treatments and therapeutics like miracles. You know, he's speaking now from experience saying, look, we have, uh, you know, an opportunity to turn the corner on this. There is light at the end of the tunnel. I'm somebody who has firsthand knowledge of the incredible things in the pipeline that are coming to Americans once they uh, clear the final regulatory hurdle. So I think it's actually really a fantastic part of this story is that, you know, the president's going to be able to speak from experience, which is so much more powerful.
Yeah. Do, do you think that uh, the other two remaining debates will happen? Well, I think there will be at least one more presidential debate. The notion that the, the debates could be held over Zoom, I just don't see how that fits with the president's style. And I don't know that that serves his interests particularly well. I don't think that in debates two or three, the president's going to be any easier on Joe Biden. He might interrupt a little bit less. He might, you know, polish up a few things that were rough edges. But the reality is, is he is going to go for the juggler. That's his style. And I think seeing the president speak to you through the camera attacking Joe Biden in that way is going to be very, very, very jarring. You'll notice in the first debate, President Trump almost never looked at the camera. He was constantly had his gaze set on Joe Biden, whereas Joe Biden was speaking through the camera to the American people in some of his responses. And so it, you can't go on the attack looking at the American people. And, and I just I think that uh, there will be at least one more debate. I hope that's in person uh, because I just don't think Zoom serves the president's interests very well there. Yeah, you know, I, I honestly, I, I didn't think that first debate would happen the way it did. I, I was pretty well convinced that uh, that they would end up being in separate locations and that Biden would have an earpiece in and he'd have people just off camera range holding up cue cards and coaching him through all this stuff. Um, do the accusations of Trump not uh, renouncing white supremacist groups, uh, when in fact he has, if you, if people drill down and do their homework, especially after the, the Charlottesville thing, Time Magazine itself had, had actually, uh, you know, written an article and, and detailed how he renounced uh, these white supremacist groups. This, this keeps getting brought up time and time again. Do you have any sort of data on this at all? I, I mean, I, I get it's politics. It just, to me, it just seems utterly ridiculous that anybody thinks that the white supremacist vote out there is vast enough, that it's large enough, that the president would need to cater to a bunch of white supremacists. I, I think the whole premise is ridiculous. Of course, Biden will continue to use it. But I'm just curious, how, how do you see that? Because we, we have to literally be just talking about minute splinter groups, aren't we? It's an, it's an incredibly small portion of the population. Now, you know, Democrats would have you believe that white supremacists are just saying publicly what all Republicans believe privately. And yeah. so that's why Democrats make such a big deal of it, because they say, well, hey, look, you know, if, if the president's not willing to denounce this clearly abhorrent group, you know, maybe it's because there's a larger portion of his base that actually believes these things, even though they aren't vocal about it. I think that's absolute BS. And, and I think it's absolutely ridiculous. That said, you know, time is precious. I mean, and, and with the benefit of retrospect, we now realize that even more, the, can, the candidate's time on the, on the campaign trail is precious. And the fact that they spent two days trying to clean that up after the debate were two days that were just frankly wasted from a messaging opportunity, right? That's, that's not something that they should be so easily distracted by. If the question is, will you disavow white supremacy? That's an opportunity where you say, this is the easiest question I'll get of the 20, entire 2020 cycle absolutely devout, asked and answered, moving on. And every time it comes up, it's an opportunity to say the exact same thing. It should be automatic. I know the president has disavowed it in the past, but why they have allowed themselves to sort of have this linguistic pretzel that they found themselves in, uh, yeah. it just doesn't make sense to me. Well, and I mean, would it make sense at this point, especially since he's he's down, so to speak, uh, with, with, with COVID? I, I don't imagine it can be that difficult for him even if it's, uh, you know, not actual video footage of him, but he could release a statement that they could certainly smother, uh, you know, Internet um, advertising with and just have him say, I, you know, in no uncertain terms, absolutely denounce white supremacy as a as a motive. And I denounce these groups if he just made up a simple, quick 10, 15 second adlet and, and saturated, you know, television and online, um, you know, advertising with it. Would that be a prudent move right now? Or or is that allowing uh, Biden and the Democrats to to dictate his campaign message and maybe he should focus on something else? Yeah, I mean, my sense here is that if you're explaining, you're losing. That's why it was so upsetting that there was two days lost in messaging about this issue to begin with after the debate. I think, you know, with the president uh, contracting, you know, COVID here, um, the, the messaging has changed. Now, 
we can fully expect that when the president gets on that debate stage, whether it's on October 15th or it's it's postponed, uh, A, um, I'm excited for that because I think it will convey that strength. Um, again, there's not a sympathy vote, but there's a strength vote. Seeing him up there vigorously you know, debating for 90 minutes, I think is going to be a powerful message about him turning the corner on this thing, just visually. But B, you should fully expect a second bite at the apple here to say, do you hear on the stage disavow white supremacy and he should have an absolutely crystal clear ready to go in the bag answer for that so i expect it to come back in the second debate and that will be the opportunity to be finally asked and answered this cycle i've seen one of these upcoming debate moderators moderators uh, literally is a former um joe biden intern why would the president even agree to to have somebody uh be a moderator it, it just seems so uh, one-sided. I mean, people are, are still fuming over Chris Wallace and, and the way he ran things. And now, um, and I can't remember the guy's name. I believe he's a, a, a C-SPAN uh, commentator or something. But he actually w- was a Biden intern. Why would you agree to that? Yeah, uh, Steve Scully, uh, I believe is his name, if I recall correctly. Um, you know, honestly, I think that looks bad on the Presidential Debate Commission. I, I think that was a, a case of um, not doing your research. Uh, we'll see. I mean, you know, the format uh, that, that he's hosting, at least he was supposed to on October 15th, was, the, was that sort of town hall style um, format where it would be more questions from the American people, and hopefully the moderator truly would play a, a smaller role in it. That said, um, especially given the, the you know questions around uh, health and safety, maybe that type of format for debate just doesn't happen this cycle, and we go to another two candidates on the you know at their podiums on the stage and, and just keep it simple. So we'll see. I, I agree. I, I think it's kind of ridiculous and um, bad on the P- presidential debate commission for that. We were just told this last week that Ohio is a, is a toss-up state. I mean, we, we've long been a um, a swing state. But uh, it sounds like it's pretty deadlocked here. Uh, just one more quick question before you go. How, what What do you think right now? What's your vibe on this? Do you think uh, if Election Day were tomorrow, who wins? Uh, if it were tomorrow, I think it, it, it's Biden, to be perfectly honest. Um, I, I think there's a lot of uncertainty around Trump right now. But that, is, you know, the, the Trump campaign has an incredible field operation that's been running at full strength for six months. That, more than any other surrogate or any other voice on the campaign trail, any other politician organizing rallies, that is what's going to make the difference in this race. It's going to be a nail-biter down to the wire. And, I mean, October's already been a long year. Goodness knows what happens next. (laughs) All right, Ryan Casson, political strategist and CEO of Beast Digital. Ryan, thanks for your time this afternoon. Thank you. Take care. The Sunday Six-Pack with Dave Mann on News Radio 610 WTVN. Well, certainly when everybody woke up on Friday morning, it came as a, a shock. And, a, well, I don't know if it was a surprise for some people or not that the, the president had come down with COVID-19. And especially since uh, he does tend to uh, shun wearing a mask. So joining me right now, uh, expert on infectious diseases, Patty Olinger. Patty, thanks for taking some time this afternoon. I appreciate it. Oh, thank you for having me. What were your first thoughts when you heard that the president was positive for COVID-19? Had you heard it late Thursday night or or did you hear it uh, on Friday morning? Friday morning. um, You know, it's devastating when you hear anybody. Um, I've had several friends who have had family members that both have died from, uh, you know, COVID-19 and that have come down and, and also you know, come through it. But, you know, when you hear of anybody getting it, and especially if you hear, you know, somebody who, you know, you either know personally or someone like the president, it's a devastating thing for all of us to have to deal with. For him to be transferred, you know, to Walter Reed on Friday, do you think that was merely precautionary? Or or do you think that possibly uh, the situation might have been more dire than they were letting on to? (laughs) You know, not being a physician myself, I would say that just in general, um, I would say that it's precautionary just from a standpoint of he, they wanted to be ready um, in the event that he would turn, um, you know, say, you know, very serious. You wanted to mm-hmm. be ready immediately. And also, you know, to be able to, to be able to treat him in, you know, as quickly as possible, both from a, we'll say, a proactive standpoint and reactive, depending yeah. upon what, what, what was going on. 
Well, and, and I, I'd love to get your take on this because, and maybe I'm off base here. It just seems to me that um, if this had been, gosh, I don't know, mid mid to late March, and we find out that the president has contracted COVID-19, I, I think the nation probably would have been, um, you know, much more fearful. Um, it just, nowadays, um, has something changed with, with this virus that you can tell? It, has it become easier to treat or, or is it somehow less lethal than it was in the late winter, early spring? Or is it just me um, and my, you know, my own, um, I'm just tired of hearing about it. So in my <laughs> mind, in my mind, I think this isn't as deadly as it was. What, what can you tell us about that? I think that we continue to learn. Um, number one, we're learning about this virus as, a, as the physicians, um, how to treat it, how, you know, what, what we're responding, uh, drug companies are coming out with more treatments. Like we've seen, you know, even for the president, um, they, you know, who would have heard of some of these drugs, you know, a couple days ago. And now, Mm -hmm. you know, we're all hearing about them. And I think that's a positive thing from that standpoint. Um, our researchers are amazing people. And, you know, having said that, uh, we're learning more, we're testing more. And then I think that you brought up a point and i've read more on this and we see it is what we call pandemic fatigue you're right we're getting tired we're getting tired of being sequestered the other thing that's interesting is some of the predictions and that you know we're waiting for this vaccine and if we would just all wear masks wash our hands not touch our face practice social distancing um it would make a huge impact and I think that, if anything, maybe the president coming down and the first lady coming down with COVID-19, maybe it brings the message home. We need to wear our masks. So, OK. Um, and so you, you've said it there twice, but uh, you, you are very, uh, very pro-mask still. I, I know a lot of listeners to our station. Uh, I'm, I'm not saying they're anti-maskers by any means, but I, I can just tell everybody's uh, sick and tired of it. Um, you know, we, we had an incident here, and you may have seen it on the national news, where there was a young mother uh, at, a, at a middle school football game. Uh, she wasn't wearing a mask, and uh, a, a police officer ended up forcibly removing her from the stadium. I, apparently, he had made several requests for her to put the mask on. She did have a mask. You can see it in her back pocket. Uh, she said, I, I have uh, asthma and, and chose not to wear it. Sadly, the, the situation became a, a series of unfortunate events, and she got some national news. But I, I myself, I know that you know my son plays high school soccer. We, we go to these games, uh, you, they only allow 15% of, of the, the grandstands to be full or a max of 1,500 people. But we sit outside on these beautiful fall evenings and, and uh, we're, there's more than enough space to be socially distanced. And it does really seem to be, it seems, to, it seems ridiculous that we have to wear masks sitting out in the open but I could be in a restaurant six feet away from somebody. We could both be eating and we could both be maskless. So I'm just curious. And I know, I know it's the local high school association going, Hey, we just want to play ball. We want to, we want to obey what the governor says so we can have sports. And I totally get that. I'm just curious. Do you think it's still important to wear a mask outside if you're socially distanced? You know, that's a really good question, and and you brought up a lot of different points, Um, one of which is that there's a lot of still confusion out there of when we need to wear one. I can go to Walmart, but I can't have, let's say, a a convention. Um, And and so there's a lot of confusion, and I think that that's something that, unfortunately, some of the messages that we heard in the very beginning um, on a face mask versus a respirator and what they do and what they don't do really Mm -hmm. confuses folks. Um, you know, there are certain situations that you're absolutely right. If I'm outside and I am far, you know, dis- socially distanced, do I really need to wear a mask? And if, I, you know, the thing I think that is confusing for a lot of folks is taking that responsibility of, you know, if you were to get it and you go home, um, for instance, um, 
I have some, you know, fam, uh, family uh, relations that are in um, uh, chemotherapy. And, you know, I would never want to take that risk of getting myself infected and then potentially getting them infected. Um, you know, do you have any of those risks? And when you do, take that responsibility to then, you know, up the game and, and put your mask on. Uh, there are some masks out there that aren't that bad to wear. And if it, all it takes is us to do that to get through this winter um, to when we get that vaccine, that's not a lot to ask of everybody. And so on one hand, I totally understand there are situations where you're right. We're outside. It's a beautiful night. Um, we can social distance. And, um, you know, it's not that the, the risk level, if we did that risk assessment, is probably quite low as opposed to other situations. But the, 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 if, there's... if someone's going to have us do this to be able to open back up, then let's do it. There's talk that the president uh, could get out of Walter Reed as early as tomorrow. Uh, do you think at this point um, that he kind of changes his tune? Do you think it's incumbent on him to change his tune as far as uh, being resistant to wearing a mask, especially at his rallies? You know, um, as a biosafety professional and a virus management professional, I hope he does um, because it's it's so important. Um you know, to getting through this pandemic. And this isn't the last pandemic that we'll see. You know, um, we've been predicting this, you know, for quite a while. And just because we get, you know, we get a handle on SARS-CoV-2 doesn't mean that a flu pandemic isn't right behind it. We need to be prepared. And we need to be prepared for what comes next. And we need to learn these lessons. I mean, you can go back to 1918 and look at, search a Georgia Tech football game. And... If you for the pandemic of 1918, and they're all wearing masks. I mean, we've been through this before. And we need to listen to the le- messages that we're learning so that we can be prepared for the future. Do you worry that you know if the president does have a rapid recovery from this, that it, that is going to underscore to to a lot of people? See, it's not a big deal. And and I'm sure he's going to go out of his way. He's going to come out and go. He's going to thump his chest and go. You know, I beat it. You, you it couldn't keep me down. And you know, we're going to continue to move forward. Uh, do you do you think that rapid recovery really could could undermine uh, you know people continuing to to wear masks and proceed with caution? Um, that's hard to tell. I think what's going to be important is when they can come forward with some idea of how he potentially um, became infected or exposed. I think that's going to be important for those of us to better understand how that happened. Because, you know, my hope would be that, um, I mean, I realize that he has a wonderful medical staff and and that, but there's a key component that also needs to be part of that, and that is infection control and biosafety. And... Um, you know, that infection prevention measures uh, to keep us safe are very important. That's, you know, what we've put in place with GVAC STAR and, and our facility accreditation program. And it's one of those things that we need to pay attention to that and then be prepared. And that's what I hope that we find out more about how he potentially got infected so that we can learn from that. And, and that's a message that's going to need to come out. All right, Patty Olinger, expert on infectious diseases. Patty, thank you for carving out some time for me this afternoon. I really appreciate it. Hey, you have a wonderful day and stay safe. The Sunday Six Pack with Dave Mann on News Radio 610 WTVN. Thanks for checking out the Sunday Six Pack this afternoon. You know, on Fridays on the Six Pack, we do what is called the Beer Show, where a local brewer comes into the studio, usually brings uh, three or four of their uh, their finest concoctions, and we, we sample those and, uh, and and drink them and talk about them. And, and then uh, some nights we have a, a distiller come in, and we're fortunate enough in the in Columbus area that we not only have a thriving craft beer scene, but also a uh, thriving uh, craft distillery scene as well. And uh, so uh, last Friday night, Josh Gandy joined me from Watershed Distillery. And uh, the whole idea was because, um, well, that because today, 
is National Vodka Day, and we thought it'd be fun to have Josh come in and uh, and bring some of some of his stuff. So, in celebration of, I know it's it's just it's more of a marketing ploy than anything else. But what the hell? If you're not doing uh, anything too pressing, maybe kick back and enjoy a little vodka on uh, on Vodka Day. So, Josh Gandy of Watershed uh, Distilling. Josh, what did you bring us today? So I brought you a couple things. So vodka is uh, is how we got our start. We started with vodka and gin. So uh, we're really excited to you know have a product as good as this. I also brought you a little bit of our tonic water, which we have available at the curbside bottle shop, and one of our cocktail kits, which always comes with a house-made simple syrup, fresh citrus, and a uh, recipe card to teach you how to make some drinks at home. This vodka, I, I'm not a huge vodka drinker, but this is very smooth. Very, I mean, most vodka is kind of smooth, right, compared yeah. to whiskey and bourbons and By stuff? By definition, but- it's got to be odorless and colorless, um, and you can make vodka from just about anything. So if you think about Russian or Polish <laughs> vodka, it's usually made from potatoes. Ours is made from corn and apple. Okay. So it already brings a little bit of that like natural sweetness to it with that apple. It makes it a little bit easier drinking. Is that unique to Watershed to make something out of corn and apple? Yeah, it, it's a bit of our and our, our homage to uh, the Ohio farming culture. You know, Ohio is known for apple, known for corn, so we source as, as close as we can to be able to gather those things and make the vodka from that. Really, really good. Um, let's talk about, uh, we'll go back, because I've been hitting everybody with this same thing, but uh, it, it just kind of bears repeating. So we, COVID-19 shows up out of nowhere, the guest that was not invited to anybody's party. <laughs> And and you guys had to deal with it, so you you jumped into the hand sanitizer game as well, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, we were we were quick to that. That was something that we could offer. Uh, you know, we went to first responders first, and then once we knew that they were comfortably taken care of, uh, we were able to open it up to the public. And we had some enormous lines in the very beginning. You know, people didn't realize that you know, they didn't know if they'd be able to get it or not. So we had lines like rounding the block. And uh, we uh, we stopped production, but we still have hand sanitizer for sale at the bottle shop. Okay, that's great to know because as we head into the fall months and everybody's going, I don't know what what's going to happen. You're already kind of starting to hear reports that maybe you know you should stock up. Certainly, you still can't find wipes, you know, anywhere for the most part. And you know, I think people are starting to look ahead. So, uh, so you guys are still stocked on the on the hand sanitizer. So, so come on in and get it while it lasts. Absolutely, we have sixteen ounce bottles, and they're four dollars a piece. Did you run into that same problem that a lot of other people did, just as far as as getting the the uh, the packaging, the container for the hand sanitizer? Oh yeah, we went through probably five to six different variations of it. So, you know, if you were collecting along the way, you've got some limited run <laughs> bottles from the early days. Well, you know, you bring up a great point, too, because, you know, hopefully this is a once every hundred year kind of thing. Um, Hopefully most of us never see a a pandemic again. But whether it's, you know, five years or 20 or 30 years down the road, the people that have those things go, what were these for? Well, (laughs) this was back, uh, you know, during the pandemic and and people kind of, you know, in order to keep the doors open, started to do things that they, they didn't normally do. Uh, so right now, um, you guys, I, I know you got a fantastic restaurant there. Um, that's open and running, correct? That is uh, remaining closed okay. for the rest of 2020. So oh, all right. beginning of 2021, we'll, we'll take a look at it, but it kind of upended the way we do everything. So it, we the, okay. the restaurant closed down and what once was a bottle shop that you could come in and, and sample and grab a, uh, a bottle is now everything's handled curbside. So if you pull up, you honk your horn, we've got somebody coming out, um, you know, with sanitizer, masked up, being able to get you what you need. And even some of our limited releases that we did this year, they were all done curbside. So where we used to be able to shut down the road outside and have everybody come hang out, it's, mm-hmm. it, we're running up to the car and doing things like that. So not to belabor the point, but the kitchen, no carry out, no nothing. No carry out. On pause. Okay. Well, I'm sorry to hear that. I, I, I didn't realize it had gotten to that point. Um, take me back to the vodka again. Is this uh, this widely available, or is, did this just come out? Or uh... So this is uh, one of our first products, and actually last month we just celebrated our 10-year anniversary. Oh, okay. So it's uh, it's been with us since the, the beginning. We're, we're now up in around like the mid-200 as far as batch numbers go. So we've, we've been producing it for some time. But when we came out of the gate, we had two products. We had vodka and we had gin. And what's unique about the gin is we wouldn't have that if we didn't have our vodka. So we start the base of that corn and apple, which is the vodka that you're sipping. And then to create the gin, we take our blend of botanicals. So if you're familiar, gin is called four peel. 
And if yeah. you've had London dry, you know that it's really piney and dry. We still use the juniper that you have to have for, for gin, that 51%, but the rest of the 49 we make up with that really bright citrus kind of appeal. So we've got lemon, lime, orange, and grapefruit peels that we add on top of the vodka, let that macerate, and then distill again. So with without vodka, we wouldn't have gin. So you you said this was batch 200 of the vodka? The one that I I brought is 209, but 209. we're kind of in the, the mid-200s. Okay, and then uh, are, are you keeping pace gin-wise, or is there more gin than uh, as far as batch numbers? We, I, I believe there's more. We sell more gin than we do, do vodka, which is uh, kind of funny because a lot of the people that talk to us, they come up to us and they tell us they don't like gin. <laughs> and uh, we get to tell them you don't like gin yet. You know, everybody kind of had like a, a, a tough go with it. I imagine it came out of a trunk hot and in a plastic <laughs> bottle. So it's time to revisit if you haven't seen it in a while. Uh, well, I, I'm one of those people. And I remember having that rev- revelation on this show. It's like, yeah, I'm not a gin drinker. And then I tried some of it and I went, hey, wait a second now. Uh, because I just, yeah, it, it goes back to a roller rink uh, a long, long time ago <laughs> in a galaxy far, far away. So, uh, <laughs> all right. So you, you guys make some vodka and you make some gin. Uh, and, and what else you guys got uh, in, in the, the tanks or the kettles or the... Uh so first comes love, first co- next comes marriage. After we had the, the gin, we also had some barrels lying around because we started bourbon production pretty much right off the rip. But bourbon has to hang out for a little while. Yeah. But once we had spent barrels, we put some of the gin in there just to see what would happen. And we tasted it at six months. Not much happened. Tasted at a year. That was the bright spot. So now we have the bourbon barrel aged four peel gin. So that same citrusy component that I was talking about, spend some time in a barrel, comes out with a little bit more orange flavor, a little bit more vanilla uh, I know are I brought those, up the... Are those virgin barrels then that you're using? Or? We did a limited release this year that was virgin barrels, but they are spent bourbon barrels that, that come out of it. Okay. So uh, the one that we released this year was a much darker hue to it. It brought out a lot more of that wood characteristic, whereas the, the barrels that we use now are more of like a mellowing technique. So the, then the barrels, are, are they, I would imagine you're not cranking out enough barrels to use on your own. So where, where do you get your bourbon barrels from? We, if, if we, we actually, we actually are now. Oh, oh you yeah. are? Okay. Yeah, so we, uh, the first two that we tried um, uh, the barrel aging out were not our barrels, um, but we've got a really good barrel story. Uh, we used to source our barrels out from the Ozarks, where a lot of uh, bourbon barrels come from, but then Speyside opened up in southern Ohio, and it brought a, a bunch of jobs to an area that desperately needed them, and it made our sourcing story <laughs> much closer to home. So all of our barrels are Ohio barrels from southern Ohio now. That's fantastic. And, and then do you have uh, local breweries that come to you looking for your barrels to use for their barrel-aged beers and, and such? Oh, yeah. There's a, there's a lot of great breweries in town that use our barrels. Uh, we've seen some recent uh, fall releases from Wolseridge Brewing. They've got some really good stuff coming yeah, out with our barrels. Fantastic stuff. But if we're not using them again for stuff like Apple Brandy or, uh, you know, Nochino, then it definitely goes out to our friends. And from time to time, we actually have barrels available for sale for the public. Oh, can I ask what what would a barrel go for? Is that is that is that just for decorative purposes, or, or can you use it for something beyond that? Or I, I mean, it definitely could be. We've seen people saw them in half and throw some uh, plants in there, or you know, you can get creative and, and throw whatever you want in there. You can you can even call us back and let us know what worked and what didn't. I kind of I kind of realized the error of my question after <laughs> I, I you know what you do with that barrel is up to you, but. Uh, <laughs> that is uh, well, that's great to know. If if you're doing uh, let's say a bourbon in there and then you do a gin, uh, does that, can, can people use that then for beer or because I, I guess because it's been used for, for gin, for example, does that, do you have to make it known to a brewer that I get you want the bourbon barrel, but we've done gin in here. Yeah, as well? that's, that's definitely something you want to let them know because if anything, it makes the product that they're going to ha- come out with that much more unique. Yeah, like we had, there so. was a, a Kolsch from Mad Tree called uh, June and it was actually beer aged in our uh, bourbon barrel gin barrels. So it does have a different flavor profile. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for a lot of brewers, that's really exciting to be able to turn out a product that's super unique and you probably won't see anywhere else. So so the barrels that you get when you start that, uh, are they already charred inside or do you have to do that? Yep. Speyside will char them. We use char four and char five. And that's the difference of it being on fire inside for around 45 to 55 seconds. And, and so what, what is that? I mean, is it literally just kind of a... a like a torch that they just torch. Oh, yeah, with, if or? you ever get the chance to see it, it's really fascinating. So if you're familiar with the barrel, they pop off the heads on both sides. Uh-huh. So you just kind of have this this tunnel of barrel, and then they just shoot this flame directly into it. <laughs> and it just it's really like impressive because you you'll be talking and then it just shuts you right up while you watch it for all of 45 seconds. 
and the whole thing is inside and it will come rolling off a little bit of smoke coming out and then that whole thing is charred and you'll hear it referred to as alligator char because it looks like the skin of an alligator but uh oh, that, nice. that acts as uh you know a way of like uh, stripping out any impurities that might appear in the spirit and then also adding some uh, flavor on its own. So there you go. Some insight and in how they, uh, the char those inside of those barrels and, uh, and make tasty, uh, you know, bourbon and gin and vodka and all that stuff. And then, uh, even the resale market as those, uh, those barrels get sold to, uh, brewers who will, uh, age beer and stuff like that inside. Um, also, you know, it's interesting to note, uh, more people drinking this year than last year, of course, probably pandemic related. But uh, the week ending March 21st of this year, when lockdown started to become the norm, the, num- the numbers show that national alcohol sales increased by 54% over the same time in 2019. Online, the number is even more substantial. Internet booze sales increased by 262%. It was three weeks after that when the World Health Organization issued a warning expressing concern about impending alcohol abuse happening during self-isolation. Like they say, everything in moderation, right? Adults between 30 and 59 increased drinking by 19%. Alcohol was consumed on at least one day per, uh, per month. By 75% of adults, women drinking up, uh, that gone up 17%, and women's heavy drinking, four or more drinks within a few hours, that spiked 41%. So, uh, yeah, keep those numbers in mind. Uh, as always, enjoy in moderation, but... Today is National Vodka Day, so maybe you want to mix up a little liquid treat for yourself and uh, and watch the rain come down a little bit later on this afternoon. The Sunday Six Pack with Dave Mann on News Radio six ten WTVN. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Six Pack. There, there's a new documentary about the Newport Music Hall. <laughs> It debuted online last Wednesday night, and joining me now to discuss it is Scott Steinecker of Promo West Production Productions. Scott, how you doing this afternoon? Good. How you doing, Dave? Man, I'm I'm doing great. So tell us a little bit about the. I got a bunch of questions I want to ask you, but t- tell us what right. we can expect from from this uh, documentary. Uh, where can people see this tonight? Well, you can go on YouTube and go to Promo West TV. Okay, and it's going to be streamed live. Uh, or you can go on the Promo West Facebook and catch it also. Okay. Uh, but YouTube's probably the easiest. Mm-hmm. And, Scott, what is the present state of the Newport? You own it, right? I mean, it's going to be around for a while? Yes, we have a lease. Um, I was Promo West uh, sold 51% to AEG. So AEG and Promo West, we uh, own the lease to the building. And we have another, I think, seven or eight years on the lease. But okay. We've been in there now for... I was in Agora for 14 years, and I've had it as the Newport Music Hall for 36 years. Wow. And when, when it was the Agora, was that just because there was a sister venue in Cleveland? Is that what the thing was? Was that the same owner, or, or what was behind the Agora? The, Hank LeConte out of Cleveland, Ohio, there were, I think, 11 Agoras at one point, 11 okay. or 12 uh, in the country, from Youngstown to uh, Dallas. To Cleveland, Columbus, huh, okay. somewhere in Florida. I think there were ten or ten or twelve of them at one time, and that was Hank Lacani out of Cleveland. That's who I bought the lease from in 1984. Yep. And what what is the uh, significance of the name Agora? Do you know? Um, what does it mean? Yeah, I I, I mean yeah, other, Agora, other than a... I think means means gathering place. Okay, okay, I believe. So you switched it to the Newport, and and what what was the significance behind the Newport name change? Well, the Agora had gotten a little rough, if you guys remember the late 70s. Um, and when I took it over in 84, we wanted to clean it up, change it a little bit, uh, give it a fresh look, feel, uh, name, and we came up with new. It was two words that in the beginning, Newport, and then we just put it together and called it Newport Music Hall okay. and Rock Club. Um, so, so over the yeah. years, man, there, there's been, I mean, there's been some fantastic, big names have, have come through on yeah. their way up their career ladder. Uh, Queen, yep. uh, you said, uh, you know, Tom Petty opened for Meatloaf there. Grateful yep. Dead 
what, what about, uh, I saw a mention in an article, Kiss performing in there without makeup during a power outage opening for Rory Gallagher. That sounds fantastic. Oh, oh yeah. Everybody, every band, whether you're the Stones or the Beatles or whoever you are, you start out in small clubs and you grow yourself up. So uh, just about every band ever. From the Grateful Dead to Pink Floyd to ACDC to have all played the Newport Music Hall on the way up. Bruce Springsteen, U2 for $4.50. Wow. Um, just about everybody. Pearl Jam has played that building. Yeah, it's pretty uh, It's pretty wild. The, the documentary has some great footage of Queen and ACDC on stage. And, and that, that footage is from the Newport? It's not stock yeah. footage from some other live show somewhere? Nope. It's all footage from the Newport. Did Jimi Hendrix ever play the Newport? Oh, you know what? I don't think. That's a good one. Okay. I need to research that. I don't think he ever played the old Agora either. Uh, I'm I'm a huge Hendrix fan. I've never found a reference to it. I I know that he did a gig at Vets Memorial in Columbus here, and a a Stratocaster was stolen from him at that oh. Vets Memorial show, and it always, I've always wondered, is that Strat somewhere in this city? Because yeah. uh, <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. And, yeah and it, that's you, one I don't know if he ever played. And then uh, there was a, a mention, too, that, that Mick Jones and Lou Graham of Foreigner actually yep. met at the Newport. Yep. What show were they attending? What What's the story you know, behind that? You know what? And I, I knew that at one point, but I can't remember yeah it was a show at the newport uh they met each other hey i'm a singer hey i'm play guitar (laughs) and they went on to form the band foreigner which is a great story yeah and uh, didn't the cars kind of get a little bit of a start in columbus as well yep yep the cars they used to have drink and drown wednesdays uh at the agora and every wednesday you'd have ario speedwagon or hall and oats (laughs) or uh, names like that. It blows you away when I've done some of the research on that. And, and what would a ticket have costed for something like that? Well, Drink and Drown was five bucks all you could drink. Come see Ario <laughs> Speedwagon Jam. Yeah, but there's we have ticket stubs. Uh, U2 played in the early 80s uh-huh. um, for $4.50. Um, so, yeah, tickets back then were, you know, five, mm-hmm. $7.00. Uh, they started to creep up. They've always creeped up. As the deals in the industry changed, um, Peter Grant of Led Zeppelin changed the whole industry when yes. he said, hey, the band's the one drawing all the crowd. We need to have a percentage of the back end. So all those flat fees that used to be paid to bands became flat guarantees plus percentage plus a back end. And it used to be 60-40, so tickets were X. Then the band started saying, no, we want it to be 70% to the band and 30. Wow. Tickets went up again, then 80, 20, 90, 10. Then Live Nation got into the uh, business and tickets went skyrocketed. But um, yeah, tickets used to be $4.50. Scott Steinecker joining me, CEO of Promo West Productions. A new documentary uh, debuts tonight at 8 o'clock on uh, on the Promo West YouTube channel, and it's called If These Walls Could Talk, and it'll take you back through some, some great memories in uh, in Columbus music history. Is is uh, the Agora slash the Newport the longest-running club in operation in, in the country? Yeah, it's the longest continually running rock club. You had the Whiskey A Go-Go in L.A. that opened in the uh, late 60s, mid-60s, uh, before the Agora did in 69, um, but it had three or four years where it was a discotheque, and it didn't do live hmm. for three or four years. So we are the longest continually running rock club in history. And, and correct me yep. if I'm wrong, but um, you were an understudy of famous rock promoter Bill Graham. Is that correct? Yes. I interned with him one summer. Oh, my God. So, I cannot imagine. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was Indian. I just did the interning kind of things. I was 21 years old, and I took day on the green posters in San Francisco and had to put them up and you know, different shows for the Fillmore. And, I was just going to ask, um, did he still have the Fillmore East West at the yeah. time? Uh, he didn't have uh, East. Okay. He just had West in 1981. Uh, he didn't have Fillmore East more than like five years. But, yeah. Uh, the famous one was Fillmore West in San Francisco. And 
Yeah, that was the coolest summer, you know, ever. Well, there are some fantastic live albums. Uh, you know, Allman Brothers, uh, that was done at Fillmore East. And between those two clubs, it's just legendary. Were there any major label live albums recorded at the Newport? Um, yes, I think so. That's, I, I mean, McGuffey Lane did their live album there. Okay. But, um, you know, other, other, you know what, I think the Cars did something early on in their career. Um that's a good one. It was named by record companies back in those days as the best showcase club. Um, even when you had all the Agoras, it was the best Agora of them all. Uh, well, I remember thinking uh, the live album by Little Feet, Waiting for Columbus, for years. I thought that that was done you know, at, uh, at the Newport, yeah. and I found out now that was mostly recorded in D.C. and o- over in England. But um, yeah. So, so I, I got to ask, I, I know it's probably yep. asking you, like, what's your favorite kid? But, man, what, what would be your fondest Newport memory? <laughs> wow. <laughs> or, or, or top three. Yeah. I mean, I, I could sit and listen to you talk about this stuff all yep. night, but... Give me, give me a couple. Well, we used to, on QFM, when you were over there, uh-huh. we'd do call-in, and people could name a band, and I'd have to tell a story. Um, <laughs> but top three, James Brown. Wow, okay. James Brown has to be one. Uh, Black Keys, Red Hot Chili Peppers, 21 Pilots, when they came back and did their tour of Columbus, when mm-hmm. they were the largest band in the world at the time. Um, Green Day. When they were doing an arena tour, yeah. they chose three clubs that they wanted to play in the country just to bring back the old feel, and they chose the Newport Music Hall. So Green Day, that was... It was four, four years ago. My, my producer Josh yeah. and I were just reminiscing about that because it was right around this time, four years ago, we went to that show. That, that definitely ranks up there. Uh, you know, personally, yeah. when, when you were talking about the other station that I used to work for, we had a birthday yep. show there one year that was uh, uh, the Greg Allman Band, and they did a yep. ton of old Allman standards. Uh, that was uh, fantastic. And I'm a huge fan of Government Mule and Warren Haynes, yep. and I've seen him do some yep. incredible shows in yep. that venue so yeah yeah there's so many you just have each person has you know their different show that was their greatest and they have the the spot that they like standing in the most or um yeah it's, it's pretty wild and, and then how about uh, just one great you know not necessarily a performance but g- give us one great behind the scenes story so, something where things were you know is it true for example i think i heard one time that that bb king was like literally walked off the bus the the, the the band was out playing for 20 minutes he was nowhere to be yep. found and pulled up and walked yep. in and plugged in and then walked down the sidewalk with his guitar or something yeah well he uh bb king did that also albert collins did okay that, where they're out on the bus <laughs> albert collins was actually working on his bus underneath it and i had to go and get down on my hands and knees and go albert you're you're on so he crawled out it was freezing out it was february came up the back uh, staircase there uh didn't even go into his dressing room walked down the hallway down the spiral staircase walked out on stage did his hour and a half show Uh, came back and got underneath the bus again yeah and and he was certainly a blues giant as well so all right scott thank you so much for your time and hope to talk to you again soon all right Dave, man